A coward dies a thousand deaths. A soldier dies but once. Welcome to Long Story Short. Today we have educator, artist, as in both visual and auditory, curator, and most importantly, in terms of our conversation here, art theorist Mark Cameron Boyd. Mark has done a number of captivating collaborative projects that present such intellectual stimulation that they are equally functional as sociological experiments as much as visual works of art. Hence, we have their predication of art theorist. His most notable representations of this process-oriented work are his series of collaborative written work manifesting as linguistic abstract compositions. In parallel to these art-based thought experiments lies a studio's understanding of Krauss, Greenberg, Walter Benjamin, you name it. Welcome, Mr. Boyd. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here with you, Arthur. Let's start this as general as we can. I want to make this program equally educational of an experience as entertaining for all the listeners. In contrast to the production of art, for people who do not understand the theoretical aspect of art, define the study of art theory. Well, uh, that's a a good way to start. Um, I was impressed with your questions that you provided me, and uh, I love the way that we're going to do this conversation casually. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, because I'm sure you've heard enough of my lectures uh, from the years that you took my classes. So we we approach ourselves, I mean, as an artist slash theorist, which I consider myself. I was an artist way before I even got into art theory, although by its very nature, I think that we explore theory from the get-go. Even if we just picked up a brush and never took any classes, I think that we would be immersed in theory without even knowing it, you know, unconsciously immersed in it. Hmm. But uh, we can get into that deeper uh, later on. I think that the idea is that theory is sort of an exploration of the why behind the work. And at times it actually gets into the how. Because if you look at the, uh, the idea or the concept of a work needing to be represented or uh, mobilized or uh, actualized, to be a better word, then you have to figure out how you're going to do it, and the how sometimes is influenced by the concept. This is why it's very interesting that uh, the old architectural expression of uh, form follows function Mm. actually works well for ideas about considering theory, because if you if you think of your function as being your concept, like what is the concept of a house? You know, well, it's to keep you dry. Well, you want to have a nice roof. Then. I mean, that's a simplified way of looking at it. But if you, if you look at the concept that you're dealing with in your work, let's say the work of uh, Frank Stella. I, I started looking at Stella some more uh, and reading about Stella some more since we first, uh, since you first engaged me about this idea of uh, Clement Greenberg. Yeah. Um, we look at Stella as a wonderful depiction of this actual um, study or the, his actual work being a study of the theory. 
I'm thinking specifically of the black stripe paintings, the paintings that he first did at a very young age. I mean, he's 23, 24 years old when he did these paintings. I think if I remember right, 58, 59, somewhere in there. And the paintings, for those of you that don't know, and I'm sure people can start looking it up now on the, uh, on the internet. Repetitive. Black stripe, black stripe paintings, yeah. Frank Stella. The width of the brush uh, defined the mark upon the canvas. And his idea was that he wouldn't do anything more than that because he wasn't interested in trying to depict space. Um, you know, we can go into Stella more, but I'm just trying to get to a shorter answer for your question. In that case, Stella at the age of 23 was not an art theorist, right? But he was smart enough to think about the theories that had gone before. And he realized that, you know, everything that's been done has been done. Now, what can I paint that would be, you know, to take it forward? And he really struggles with that idea for a while. But at this very young age, he comes on a very simple, brilliant idea to just use the width of the paintbrush to dominate, to use that to construct his form. It makes a very flat painting, mm. and it makes a very abstract painting. Now, people have referred to him, including uh, Mr. Greenberg, yeah. as a minimalist, minimalist painter. But if we look at the art history books, they say, well, minimalism doesn't come along until 1963, 64. Well, guess what? Stella was doing it five years early, in 1958. That's neither here nor there. It doesn't matter who comes first. It just matters uh, later on when the uh, art historians and us theorists get, get together and we say, okay, let's construct a timeline. <laughs> That's true. It's interesting how the art theorists and the historians create the narrative. Like Graham Hancock who's a historian, he has this notion that art history is studying the evolution of human consciousness based on their relationship to the ecology at the time or where they were in terms of their technology, et cetera, et cetera. But what I find more interesting about what you said is um, I just spoke to Susan Fox, actually, this Friday, and you're making me reflect about how the decisions that these artists do in the studio practice are almost philosophical decisions, whether they they use a wide brush or a small brush and it changes the information hence it changes the interpretation for the viewer it's almost like art theory is visual philosophy of a sort true very true and and you know while i have my biases the reason why there's a growing market for this field is due to its fascinating nature once tapped into almost and a lot of people don't know about it but when i explain it to my friends they go huh this, I, I would have definitely, you know, taken a course on this in college. I mean, it's just a different part of the brain where you're really breaking down aesthetics with some sort of reflection. It's, it's a, it doesn't happen a lot, but it, it's something that art theory is really touching upon. That is the most interesting thing about what developed in the, uh, we could start with Stella. Hmm. Um, I mean, really, we could go back to the turn of the century, but let's just, let's just keep it to this concise little area, Stella 58, 59. And then uh, one of the things that uh, Greenberg talks about and uh, his, his uh, student later on, I could call him a student, although now he's uh, teaching on his own and very well-known theorist, Michael Fried. Michael Fried, he wrote Art and Objecthood. Mm. Uh, I believe he teaches over there at uh, University of Maryland at Baltimore, actually been dying to look up again and see. I know he was teaching there about four or five years ago. He may have retired now. He must be at least 80. 
but in any case, Freed, in Art and Objecthood, he really uh, wrote about the ideas that his mentor, Clement Greenberg, wow. had already started. Greenberg's idea, of course, just for your viewers and for long story short, you know, Greenberg had this idea that art was going to follow a trajectory or a narrative, if you will. And Greenberg was really wedded to this idea that art could only progress if it followed this sort of story and carried forward the ideas, right? That's why Greenberg uh, championed people like Pollock, because he felt that Pollock was the only way to go You've already gone through abstraction from the figure. You've already taken the figure through de Kooning, say. Mm. But then you reach a point where you become non-objective, like Pollock did with the classic drip paintings. Which he loved. Which Greenberg loved, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he held them as the highest. And he, he, uh, he actually helped Pollock achieve his yeah. success. Yeah, he's why Pollock was famous. This is where the relationship between theory and art is, is very powerful. Yes, Powerful theorist like Greenberg supporting you. <laughs> you know, an artist it's, like it's uh, Pollock doing something very challenging. Whereas Life magazine, you know, when they did their pictorial on Pollock, they kind of uh, made fun of him a little bit. They called him Jack the Dripper, remember? Yeah, I remember uh, that. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, um, back back to Michael Freed. You know, Freed wanted to carry this forward. So he, art and objecthood, he really, really breaks down the fact that... Um, Everyone's been going along pretty nicely, uh, you know, in terms of progressing along this narrative line. Mm. Uh, he's happy with the way um, uh, Donald Judd, Morris Lewis have carried minimalism forward. However, this is where Freed draws the line because he says, these guys are not following the way that it should go because they're introducing an element of theater. This is the word that he used. He said that theatricality has no place in this line or this trajectory, this narrative that had already been established. Now, he was trying to support the ideas of Greenberg. So he says that when they talk about phenomenology, which Morris was really, uh, and, and Judd too, were really big on the ideas of uh, Merleau-Ponty, uh, phenomenology and the fact that their sculpture was going to be inhabiting a space, which is the gallery space. The only other entity inhabiting that space would be the people that were looking at the sculpture. So this is why when you have a sculpture like, uh, you know, a, a cube, like, say, Tony Smith's die, or uh, some of the cubes that, uh, that uh, Saul LeWitt was doing, or ideas about boxes, Donald Judd's boxes, Robert, Moore, uh, Robert Morris's I-beams, these are shapes that we can grasp their entire uh, gestalt, so to speak, you know, their entire form. Mm. So then, once you've walked around an I-beam or a cube in a room, you know what it looks like. There's no surprises on the other side, right? Once you have that form in your mind, now you're just relating to it in a relational space. This is the, 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 uh, the positive aspect of what Morris and Judd were talking about. Uh, Freed, on the negative side, was saying, that's not, that's not right, because you're introducing an idea of theater. Your ideas of drama, the theatricality of a person uh, exploring or exhibiting within this space and shifting the artwork or the actual experience from the object back to the experience. Does that make any sense? I mean, I'm going to be the translator for, for people who, who may not know anything about art theory. 
Freed was trying to promulgate Greenberg's idea. Greenberg advocated an abstract direction as it then focused on the purity of the medium, almost Correct. a transcendence by excluding identifiable variables in Correct. the external world. And what you're saying is that in terms of the purity of abstract painting, the notion of theater, it's a U-turn towards the direction of pure materiality. Or getting back into the ideas away from medium-specific ideas. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know what, though? I don't take it that far in my own practice. Again, I think all artists have their biases, but this is why I like a guy like uh, Laszlo Moholonagy, because he understood the notion of medium specificity. Moholonagy, he was a painter, a professor at Bauhaus during the Industrial Revolution, so photography was brought up, and he was concerned, as many painters were, that this little mechanical box was going to one-up all the painters, because there's no way you can capture reality in the same fashion or compete against this so what he discovered was no a new medium simply changes the material towards a certain direction so painting naturally became more about shape color a different vibration and i agree with that but i think sometimes it's and i'm speaking in terms of painters it goes so far to the point that we're losing the understanding of using that skill in other words if i saw a still life and i'm looking for photorealism I might as well look at a photograph. Right. I think that the skills making a proportional and well-balanced still life with your hand allows you to understand composition, a deeper sense of color, and a direction. I think you can still get those values by practicing. Totally see Greenberg's direction, but I wanted to ask you if there was a tug-of-war between Greenberg and Rosenberg in the gallery scene, what do you see winning in a way? Well, you know, the interesting thing is the, uh, the differences can be divided along a line of, if you look at Greenberg as being more about the abstract and the literal, uh, and really it goes back to his phrase, medium specificity. Mm. You know, uh, basically for your, for your viewers and readers, the idea being, if we think about this abstraction, Okay, if, if you consider that uh, the, the painters had eliminated the figure, then they began to chop up and, and uh, decimate the figure and uh, take it beyond the realm of recognizability, although in, at times still recognizable within, say, de Kooning's Women series. But uh, continuing further to the non-objective, right, and this, this goes back to the idea of uh, the literalness of paint on canvas. This is where the ideas of flatness are so important to Greenberg because he felt like, okay, what these guys are dealing with is a two-dimensional surface. Well, we know it's not really two-dimensional because canvas has texture and thickness. Sure, and, sure. But uh, in terms of like uh, Pollock's drips and spatters of paint in his, in his classic uh, drip paintings from uh, you know, as, as early as I think 47, 48, and to, you know, just before his death, we look at them and we look at uh, what Greenberg said about them. He said, this is exactly what paint can do. The, painter, the painters are exploring, exploring the limits of what paint can do and doing what paint literally is uh, required to do. Or what it, you know, its best inherent ability is to be literally flat. Wow. It's, not, it's not to create an illusion of three-dimensionality. The interesting thing is that Freed, later when he writes in Art and Object to it, points out that 
this is a new illusionary visual mode. He uses that word. He calls it illusionary, but it's optical illusionary, which I disagree with that term, but this is the difference between optical as opposed to sculptural, which would be the old form of sculpturally trying to carve out that third dimension on a flat surface. Yeah. Right? But uh, Freed was saying it's, it's just optical because it's just paint optically perceived on a flat surface. So it's more pure if that, that has any... Uh, Greenberg's full commitment is definitely worth mentioning. It really is. Just reflecting upon that, I think about my own practice in a way. I try to create an illusion of space and all this, but at the same time, I don't go overboard. If you saw my thesis show, I never bothered to because it felt like a waste of time almost. I'm talking about art theory in terms of practicality and production. Yeah, he has a point. You know, there's a clear point he has. Uh, the main, and I, I, I understand where you're coming from. And that's yeah. you know, actually um, glad to hear that there are young artists like yourself that still look to Greenberg as being relevant in, you know, if not 100% relevant to everything that you do, but at least parts of his theory make parts sense to you. Yeah. Uh, I think that the majority of trouble that people have with Greenberg is this idea of the narrative. They don't buy the fact that there's a master narrative of painting that takes us from, say, uh, you know, the beginnings of non-objective abstraction at the beginning of the 20th century that mm. goes through all of these great painters in New York in the 40s, you know, Clifford Still, Rothko, uh, Pollock, de Kooning, uh, Morris, uh, you know, comes later. But I think the ideas are that Greenberg wanted, wanted art to perceive or be perceived as being a story or a narrative that proceeds in a positive form. This is something, um, you know, you mentioned uh, postmodernism to me in your uh, preliminary uh, yeah. correspondence when we were talking about uh, topics to discuss. This is where the postmodernists say reject Greenberg because they say there's no master narrative. There's, no, there's nothing that makes that clear sense. The world is a very complex place. People can come up uh, just out of the blue and say something that totally can uh, disavow or, uh, you know, destroy what someone has come before. And we, we know that as well as anything. I mean, you look at, look at Dada and how they destroyed art in order to create something new, right? But what you're saying is because an artist, whether doing so intentionally or not, is always a direct reflection of this culture he inhabits, whether that's the technological state held, collective economy, state of international affairs, etc., etc. And as you said, the postmodernists are commenting on the fact that we live in a cosmopolitan and diverse time where language of art is becoming more and more difficult to compartmentalize. So what happens to the timeline? I mean, on the books, where do we stand today? Are, are, we, are we living in a post-postmodernism? How would these people that understand the surfing of art history and, and can break down art from a theoretical perspective. Where, what happens to the timeline? Is the chessboard flipped or, or but, but then what goes from there, you know? Yeah, I hear you. And, um, you know, going back to Greenberg, this is what's interesting <laughs> about uh, at the latter part of uh, Pollock's life. Uh, if you recall, he starts reintroducing elements of the figure, 
at the very end of his life, you know, he died in 56. I think the paintings, if uh, you want to look those up for your readers, uh, you know, 51, 52, 53, look at Pollock's work that happens then. He starts bringing figure back into his work. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. And Greenberg hated it. He absolutely hated it. He started saying, this is the worst he's ever done. I mean, I'm not, I'm not literally quoting him. He attacked it. And uh, it really hurt Pollock. And who knows, Pollock was already, let's just you know, call it what it will, more or less suicidal, uh, drank himself to death, died in a car crash, mm. uh, intoxicated. But the idea is Implications. that you know, by not following the, the, the trajectory or the narrative, Greenberg felt he was, uh, you know, fighting, uh, what, what would we call it, fighting history, fighting fate, wow. fighting uh, truth. I mean, I, I hate to throw a word like truth into this conversation, but... I'm sure he felt a little bit betrayed as well with the fact that he was postulating this man for the fact that it was coinciding with his own beliefs, and he's now doing figures, you know? So he was yeah. probably like, what are you doing? I mean, don't get me wrong, I... I've heard stories from my peers that knew Greenberg when they were studying in New York as students. Yeah. He had a um, very specific definition of art. This person will be nameless, but she remembers that for the senior thesis show, all the students were so excited because Greenberg was coming. Aha, yeah. right? <laughs> and Greenberg comes in. We're studying his books. He's here. And yeah, he, he, he had a real specific view, but you know, he also had a reputation of... Um, being kind of a party animal too. <laughs> the reason why I mentioned that, I think he didn't have the, and maybe it could be a product of the time, but the intellectual plurality wasn't so much there in the sense that he he saw art in this way, and if it was out of that bounds, it was it was counterintuitive almost. Right. Yes, I I understand exactly, um, and the the great thing about artists are that they, uh, you know, aren't held to any particular rules. And, you know, an artist can break any rules that have gone before, and some of the best art is done because of rules that are broken. Or uh, they, they theorize within their work. They theorize new ways of creating art. So they're, they're really conceptualizing and theorizing beyond the narrative and breaking it down. And uh, I'm glad that you brought in this word uh, plurality because that's that's exactly the state that we're in today. Um, and if you looked at what oh, happens somewhere around pop art, I think that's the most interesting element after you know minimalism and things like that are coming in. And uh, I hope that none of the viewers will hold me to this specific timeline because you know uh, Warhol is doing things way ahead of what you think uh, pop art begins, right? And minimalism is still going strong right as pop art is starting to take off. And we're talking about 1961, right? But pop art really doesn't raise its facade or its, its uh, head into the public consciousness until a little bit later, right? But that's, you know, the timeline is neither here nor there because if you don't believe in a, in a narrative timeline, mm. uh, like I particularly don't, uh, but I think it's, it's an interesting uh, mantle one can assume or an oath that one could take. Mm. You know, as an artist, here's, you know, I, it's not black and white, right? It's to use another uh, postmodernism. You know, the, the postmodern thought is very much against the idea of binary, right? It's either or. They hate that. 
So there's all these variables, as you know, living in the postmodern world or post post postmodern world, is that there's so many variables within this trajectory. And we go back and we look at the history. We see that people like Warhol and uh, Oldenburg, you know, they were shooting off into areas that had nothing to do, particularly with the ideas of uh, the painting narrative. And first of all, they were painters, but they're using popular <coughs> culture imagery. They're using comic books. They're using advertising. They're using, uh, you know, graphics and packaging design. And so what made them do that? Nothing except the fact that they're artists, that they're creative, and that they can break the rules if they wish to. And so that's where we are now. We're in a very post-plural world. You know, it's way past the idea of pluralism, which really begins around the 80s, where literally you could paint and make any kind of art, sculpt any kind of art that you want. And you've also got to throw in, you know, your beginnings of performance art, your beginnings of site-specific art, your beginnings of installation art. That's the way we are now. If artists out there that are just as powerfully uh, popular and successful as there are abstract, as there are conceptual, and as there are, you know, old-school optical illusion. My only concern on that, I understand that the post-post-post-modernists, we don't like this notion that things are either-or. And I agree not everything is black and white, but I do think that under certain grays, some are darker and lighter. I consider the artist as somebody that's really respectable and does a lot of intellectual excavation. And there's a lot of work that is being shown where people who don't understand art see it and look at it as artists are mad or wasting their time or... Like, what is the value in this? And a lot of them, they don't know art theory. They haven't even studied probably basic philosophy. I I'm mentioning this because what do we do about the problem of viewers who are not artists seeing work that does not hold aesthetic standards this postmodern era? Is Yes, there's powerful abstract paintings being sold with gestural. I mean, there's no one thing now. But do you agree that there should still be a standard across the board in terms of who is exhibited in these world stages? Well, it's based on history. As, well, it's almost as if as an artist, one could make a distinction or one could make a choice, right? That one could say, okay, you know what? I'm going to go back to the narrative timeline. I'm going to go back and I'm going to try to trace it myself. Right, and this is where you have to do your own self-study, or you have to figure out a way to find the right, uh, you know, academics or historians that you can study with, and try to get down to, you know, maybe start with Greenberg and work your way through Freed, and then mm. go through Ro Rosalind Krauss, because Krauss also, Rosalind, was a uh, mentor. I mean, not a mentor, but a mentee of uh, Mr. Greenberg, mm. and knew him and and, and studied under him and. And so the idea is that even though she's looked at as one of the high, high priestess of uh, postmodernism, right? Yeah. Her relationship to this uh, trajectory is to break from it. So in a sense, she's still part of the trajectory because she breaks from it. And so you have to really read Rosalind and try to understand, okay, how does she make sense of it? Because she does talk about these these people, you know, Pollock, and she makes her way through, 
you know, Stella, and she talks about, you know, ideas about how it could work. And this is a, you know, this is one of the concepts of theory that's the most interesting, is that it's possible to conceptualize and theorize about any particular work that's out there in a gallery and make it work just by the way you're intellectualizing it. You can fit it within any framework, right? Now, here's where the artist comes in. If the artist is reading about his work, and yet he doesn't agree with what's being said about his work, uh. what does he do? Does he just sit back and say, let it all flow as it will? That and is a line. That's a good point. I guess that right there is the solution that creates a distinction between everything being this wish-wash of relativity and having a, a basis. Whether or not your intentions in your work is reflected upon the viewer, if they did not see an artist statement or, or knew where you're coming from, if a complete stranger sees your work, are their thoughts in reflection to what you were trying to convey? That's a good point. And this is where it's uh, the most challenging time to be an artist is is now. And that's, that's why. And it has been that way since at least... I'll, I want to go back as far as like uh, the 70s, you know, that since conceptual thought entered its way in and people like uh, Joseph Kossuth began writing about Duchamp and explaining how all of the art since Duchamp has now got to be considered under the guise, under the ideas of conceptual art, right? And so from that point, people are saying, well, wait a second, what if I don't agree with Duchamp? Mm-hmm. Well, that means that you, as an artist, you have to, you have to go do the theory. Uh, earlier in, in our conversation, you asked, is... Uh, you know, is a theorist necessarily supposed to produce art or vice versa? Should an artist be required to, you know, think about art theory? Or as you put it, to excavate, which I love that, to excavate the field mm. of art theory. Well, yes, the answer is yes. As an artist, since the 70s, you have to have, you know, the ability and the, the interest and the time and the energy to read, to dig through, to go to museums, to travel, to do whatever needs to be done to understand what all has come before you. Because otherwise you're liable to just go in the studio and start painting something and then paint on it for five, ten years. Then when you show it for the first time, people say, oh, these are Frank Stella black stripe paintings. And you go, what? I didn't even know people had done this before. Well, guess what they did? You know, That's this right. <laughs> One more thing is the idea, you hear sometimes artists say, everything's been done before. That might be true, and it might not be true. You know, I mean, it is true that a lot of things have been done before. And that's why I think that some of the um, some of the question that you have when you go and you see shows and you look at this work and you realize it has really very little basis to do with moving the uh, conversation forward, but in fact, it's taking it several steps back, right? Oh, because yeah. You, because you know, because you've seen it before. You, you saw the work in, uh, you know, maybe you saw Martin Creed's uh, Lights On, Lights Off. And you're thinking like, well, that's just stupid. Why, why would anyone think that that's art? We turn uh, lights I, on, lights I, off. I do. <laughs> and this goes back to the fluxist, right? Fluxism, early conceptual art, uh, you know, any of these ideas of, uh, you know, the, the, the joking around about art, you know, making, making art sort of like uh, so shocking that it's like uh, a joke. Well, you know, Mark, having said that, if we look at your semiotic paintings, your, your written paintings, those are aesthetically pleasing. The process is what makes it fascinating, but let's just say we just look at your work. 
that has an aesthetic element to it. It is composed and it's very conceptual. So this is my thing. It's like I'm 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 cool with sociologically if you look at it from a bird's eye view. Occasionally there's this what is this piece about, you know, occasionally, but there are a lot of divots coming up yeah, in the scene. Absolutely. Yeah, and that concerns me a little bit because I feel like the function of a gallery or a um or a museum is to say this is a place where we only we only hold work that has this caliber. And mm-hmm. you know, it surprises me because I, I spoke to a lot of different curators. A lot of them don't know that much about art history or theory. I mean they know a little <laughs> bit, but they what they really know is business and imagistics for the public. <laughs> <laughs> so the very thing that you are saying that people should know in order to understand and move the conversation forward, the curators are much more business oriented, which is great because you need an administrative, you know, you need that. But more than that, they should have a sense of art history, which, you know, is coupled with art theory. I got to say, like, I'm friends. I'm not going to name the gallery. It is in D.C. It it is on the uh, Northwest. And she, she studied art marketing and art management and business. Little bit of art history, but just requirements and continuing this notion of excavation. I feel like a curator should be somebody who has really excavated this yeah. field. Yeah. Just surprises me, you know. I was just gonna say that uh, outside of this this rarefied world that we live in in Washington D.C., where uh, museums are all free, right? Collection, which they charge money. I don't know why, but still, outside of this relative, uh, you know, hermetically sealed world of Washington D.C., where we live. All the other museums, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, guess what? They charge money to get in. Their business is in the process of making money. And for them, you know, imagistic and uh, ideas of uh, public consumption and, and what's going to be the most popular, they want long, long lines out the block and around the block because they want people to pay. <laughs> that's why it's, you know, that's why they get into marketing, see. You would think, and I, I agree with you, there's there's sort of like this idea that, that as a museum, you should be about education, right? You should be about history, and everything should be free, right? Like it is here in D.C. Mm. We're spoiled. We are spoiled in D.C. It's yeah, the greatest right place about in the that. world. In my <laughs> opinion, it's the greatest place in the world to be an artist. Far better than New York City, because New York City is just really? like a junk. You know, you're just, everyone's starving, and the artists there, the ones really? that... Aren't, aren't making tons of money. Well, then again, I'm doing better off the most artists. You might be right. But I hear so much things about New York City, how, like, you got to be in New York or L.A. you got to be in New York or L.A. And that's, that's the marketing. That's the hype. <laughs> wow. Believe okay. me, I've lived in L.A. I was in wow. L.A. for 20 years before coming to uh, Maryland. Oh, you're saying Maryland to Virginia and D.C., this is the place to be. Yeah, I mean, Washington, D.C., because of all the wealth of free uh, available public oh for the public museums that are open for the public oh okay okay Uh, yeah i'm I'm drawing the distinction between the gallery system which is again about making money and the museum system in dc you know the smithsonian institution of course of course yeah uh, the hirshhorn you know all of these great places to see art which just had their awful piece the hirshhorn (laughs) i'm gonna go i'm gonna go check it out and we'll have so the question i brought to susan well she's she's also you know her field is philosophy, so I, I addressed it with, what would the ancients think of this piece? Right? <laughs> and, and, and she looked at me like, I see where you're going. But from our theoretical perspective, 
if a person doesn't know the context, and again, there's no artist statement on the wall in case a person is interested, but let's just look at it from a gut perspective. I would say the most impressive thing about the piece is the fact that it was 9, 9.5 tons and it was moved. But besides that, the work had nothing to do with that process. Maybe he could have connected it, but there was none of that. It was simply a rock crashing into a car with a kiddish smile drawn on the rock. <laughs> you know, and it almost looked like, look, maybe he's trying to emulate like Duchamp and kind of putting up like a, like an anti-establishment middle finger kind of thing. <laughs> but why pay a million dollars for that? <laughs> well, you know, the idea of money is an idea that's very uh, complex in relation to art. And sure. It, it is sort of a, uh, it's embarrassing sometimes for artists. That's to my look point. This huge, uh, shameful amounts of money that are being exchanged for uh, long dead artists' works, right? Uh, Van Gogh, case in point. I mean, it's heartbreaking to think about. He sold one or two paintings in his lifetime. The last time I remember reading about it was it was uh, it was one painting to his brother, right? And now what do they bring? You know, it's just uh, disgusting the amounts of money. And so this is like new money, wealth that people are trying to buy. Actually, culture. They're trying to possess their intelligence and their culture on the walls for all the world to see. Like, oh, you're mm. you're very cultured. You own a Van Gogh. You own a Renoir. You own a Pollock. You know, and. I've got no problem with Pollock making money while he's alive, but it's the idea that after he's gone and the uh, Pollock institution, uh, you know, gets the money, then they're doing good things with it. The uh, Pollock Foundation, I think it's the Lee Krasner Pollock Foundation, wow. you know, they're giving stipends and uh, grants to up-and-coming artists. You can apply for this, you know, I mean, you're open to apply for it. And so that's a good thing. But I, I think that this idea of of pluralism envelops this whole other idea about what uh, what what's the responsibility of curatorship. Now, I wanted to say I was thinking about this. I'm glad I remembered it. Is that the idea that's occurred within the last dozen years, or maybe 15 years, is that artists have begun to curate shows, and this is, I think, the most fascinating thing because we artists we know more about history, we know more about uh, you know, theory, we know more about, more about the trajectory or the narratives and we know more about the people and the artists who broke the trajectories and yeah. the narratives. So who better to curate shows and to sort of like foment our own ideas out there than us as, as curators. So that's what I've begun to do and uh, many artists before me have, have started it. I'm jumping onto the bandwagon. Well, I think that's the right... I think that's, that was the right move to make, Mark. That's awesome. I mean, I, I remember I was um, I showed my work at the Target Gallery, and it was curated through Jeff Huntington. And Good. Th that, that show was really strong. He has an eye, and he understands a strong painting and what will make a person, whether they know art or not, the bridge of the gut go, whoa. You know? Mm -hmm. What I can say is it was because it was curated by an artist. I really think right. so. And he has a, uh, a good eye, as you say, to use that um, expression. Mm. But he also has a good mind. See? His, his, his mind and his intellect is wrapped around the ideas of art history, art theory. And so he knows a specific intention or, or idea that he wants to tell you within the show. So he's curating that idea. And yeah. that's, the most, that's the most exciting element. 
right now about you know what's happening with the uh, pluralism is that it's opened up multiple possibilities for where we think the trajectory could go. And, and just to back up a bit, you know, when I was saying to you and your readers that the uh, this is the most challenging time to be an artist because of the responsibility. You know, you have this responsibility to make your own art, but you can't just willy-nilly go out and just start, you know, throwing paint around. You really should take a look at what's happened before. Amen. So it's it's supportive of in, in education, and it's supportive and uh, uh, illustrated or uh, helped along and bolstered by good museum curatorship and stewardship that they know ideas about where art has come from and where it's going or where it could go. So these are the things that artists, young artists, would have to go and they'd have to investigate. You know, this, 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 this is actually why I started the podcast. Because if you look at the timeline, where we are, when you zoom into this moment, there are concerns that I want to expose in order to do so. For art, we, we must talk about it and people must be educated in a way because I think a lot of my peers who are practicing artists or, or uh, art enthusiasts, they are insulated with other artists. But in terms of where art functions socially, you know, not just a microcosm with each other, but amongst other people, a lot of people are talking about art as if it's not something to be as respected as it should be when people who have delved into art go, oh, okay, this is not for fun. This is a serious excavation. This, 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 is, this is work. It, in order for that to be in the milieu of culture as something common, people need to really hear it from an articulation perspective, not from just a production, the articulation of the production and the mechanics behind it in our mind. And that's why I'm trying to have more people talk about it by doing things like this. And matter of fact, I've been talking to McLean Project for the Arts. I have a project in mind where I'm going to start organizing, maybe recorded talks or debates, something of that sort. These artists of standards, we will create the next movement. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a good, exciting possibility. And uh, I'm glad that you're doing this because I think it, the we, we discussed this in my theory classes. I, I know you remember the idea of the discourse, the idea about the discourse of art helps along these ideas. It helps establish the uh, validity beyond the fact that it's worth money or beyond the fact that it's valuable and shown in galleries. But it establishes the aesthetic and the intellectual validity of these works, of the, of the works of art or the experiences of art, however you wish to work as an artist. So I'm I salute you for this and very good program to do. And let's continue to do that. You should not only continue to be a guest on this podcast, but if this takes off, which I've been a very busy bee, I would like to have people like yourself who are serious about the discussion and moving this discussion forward in terms of art. Well, this is, yeah, this is a great idea. I, I do, I, I would like to get involved in that. And uh, in addition to MPA, you might also consider talking to the Hirshhorn. Um, mm. I know they have a very good, sense of responsibility as to education. Uh, Lisa Gold, I don't know if you remember, Lisa Gold was the director of the WPA. That's right. For a, for a while. She's working at the Hirshhorn now. And I'm not sure of what her exact stature is, but you might wow. reach out to her. I yeah, I think, I think I'll talk to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to send her an email. You know, I, I want to touch on something that was 
very interesting that you brought up, which was that you're right. It's not about the money. I mean, why do people go to church? Why do people go into the vocation of becoming ministers? Or why do people study philosophy, which doesn't necessarily have income security? I mean, these things have cultural value. If you're an artist, you are self-declaring yourself as a cultural advocate. Every right. philosopher, whether it's Schopenhauer, whether it's Nietzsche, Kant, or Hegel, they all had these views, and they all disagreed about the optimal function of art because they had their biases, but they all agreed on one thing, which was that artists are cultural agents. So it's not so much about trying to make an income, which, you know, of course we do, but what I'm saying is the value of it is the same value as to why people pray before a meal or, exactly. or, yeah. or why a person meditates or why a person reads or why a person sings in the shower. It's, it's, it, these are gateways towards experiences and fortification of certain values. And, and you, you know, that's the thing about it where I don't even care about the money that much. I, I don't. I, I care about culture. And I think when a lot of artists who don't give up the artistic pursuit and stick towards it talk amongst each other, that is something I've found in common. I've noticed that these are people that care about culture. You know, uh, Nicolas Bourriot, the French theorist, he uh, believed yes. that artists were, his term for them, are cultural producers, that we produce culture. You know, like and that. it is true. In addition to uh, knowing these things and studying the arts and understanding the theory and talking about it, we actually produce the culture, you know, in yeah. conversation, in uh, situations, in presentations, and you know, the representations themselves, the art that we do. Yeah. But the other thing I worry about is what Barbara, Barbara Kruger, you're familiar with her work, Barbara Kruger. Yes. The, uh, she says uh, one of her famous pieces is, uh, it's always a photo text document, right? There's a photograph and then there's text. With this particular work, she says, when I hear the word culture, I bring out my checkbook. Isn't that a, <laughs> it's a very frightening comment, but it's also a very critical comment about the idea of those who surround the art world, because they're, they're uh, enamored of culture, but they're also the very wealthy, which throw these things along, and they, they cause things She like has a great this, point. You know, sculpture uh, that you yeah. talked about, uh, bringing a million dollars, right? Because it's culture, and right, yeah. let's, they said, let's buy it. It's a million dollars? Okay, let me write a check. <laughs> I, hate to, I hate to end on a, such a light note like that but uh but you know what she, she had a great point um i think the distinction though is yeah i mean look in order to have a predilection for a certain cultural perspective you need uh income support you need some sort of financial support and you know obviously the person who has money can really push that but in any case so uh, you know it is true that money sort of taints things at times and I hear you. You know, we, we don't do it for the money. We do it because we love mm -hmm. art. We love the discussions of art. Quality of life. Yeah. Yeah, my quality of life, I mean, I have, I have um, relatives who make, you know, typical Koreans. They make money, but the way they work and there is a lack of expression in their mm -hmm. own sense that when they simply walk into my studio, they go... Can I play? 
<laughs> and, and to which I say, of course. But, you know, there's a saying that creativity is intelligence having fun. And what happens is the artist or the self-declared artist who truly commits to this practice and puts oh, his whole life and time into it, that is the highest form of... Um, it's, it's like a very disciplined play because it's not like, it's not easy, but my God, it's fulfilling. Right. It can be. And it's, yeah. uh, it's rewarding, but it when also can, right. be, can be tough. Yeah. Uh, and it can be challenging too. That's why, you know, again, the idea that um, there's so much requirement of education, self-education, immersion in the theory and this is why a lot of these, uh, like the people we mentioned earlier, Donald Judd, Robert Morris, they end up being very powerful art theory writers themselves. Yeah. And I think most of the most interesting artists since that time, since, say, the late 70s and through throughout the last 50 years, are people who are able to articulate and write and talk about their work almost as powerfully as the work itself. Mm. And this is this is why you know we we should continue doing these kind of you know continue the discourse. I mean, it's yeah. This is awesome. Thank you so much for your time, and I really appreciate how you're able to look at this art theoretical perspective from a practical view without it being you know overly out there. And I mean, you you know how to bring the theory into a function of practicality. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, I'm happy to be able to do that. And um, yeah, let's continue. We will. Thanks so much. Okay, take okay. care. Bye-bye.